welcome to the beginning of Passion Week. A week that would change the world, though they did not perceive it to be true at that time. They'd expected it. They'd hoped something would happen. It was interesting, though, if you were to take your time to go back then. The crowds were gathered quite largely in Jerusalem. And they were excited. They were overjoyed. Especially as they saw the group coming into the city. This had been the moment they had been waiting on for a long time. The songs of old came flooding black to them. And they began singing and they began chanting and they began shouting and they began laughing. Their dreams were finally coming true. Except that their leader in the middle was not singing. He was in tears. He was in tears because the dream wasn't going to come true in the way that they had been imagining. You see... There was a lot going on, but they were not quite clear. He was not the king that they had expected. Not at all. You see, the kings in their mind, in their day, they, you know, they sat on those, uh, those thrones, those ivory thrones that had jewels on them and, and they dispensed justice and wisdom. Or as some had hoped, they thought of a warrior king. A warrior king, you know, the one who would form an army and then head to battle at its head. Except their leader was riding on a donkey. And he was weeping. Weeping for the dream that would have to die Weeping for the sword that would pierce his supporter's soul. Weeping for the kingdom that wasn't coming and for the kingdom that was. What was Jesus doing? What was all of this about? This Palm Sunday, Jesus was riding into the middle of a perfect storm. I like how the Bishop N.T. Wright frames it up and he gives his discussion of this matter around this kind of analogy, the perfect storm. He says this, It was late October 1991, a New England fishing boat by the name of the Andrea Gale had sailed 500 miles out into the Atlantic. But the weather was changing rapidly. A cold front moving along the U.S.-Canadian border from the west sent a strong disturbance through New England, while at the same time a large high-pressure system was building over the maritime provinces of southeastern Canada. This intensified the incoming low-pressure system, producing what locals called the Halloween Northeastern. These circumstances alone 
could have created a strong storm. But then, like throwing petrol on a fire, a hurricane coming in from the Atlantic brought incalculable tropical energy to the mix. The forces of nature converged on the helpless Andrea Gale from the west, the north, and the southeast. Ferocious winds and high waves, 60 to 100 feet high, reduced the boat to matchwood. Only light debris was ever found, and the crew of Law 6 was lost at sea. There had, of course, been earlier perfect storms, but this was the one made famous by a book and by a movie, which took that phrase as its title, The Perfect Storm. Jesus knew what he was doing, but he was riding into the middle of a perfect storm on that Palm Sunday. You see, we don't think of it that way. We think palm branches and hosannas and the shouting and all the glitz and the glory. Hey, hey, the beginning of Passion Week. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew what was prevailing around him, and he didn't hold back. He stepped right into the middle of it. And praise God that he did step right into the middle of it, because if he had not stepped into the middle of it, then you and I would not be seated here today with any sense of hope as it relates to not just spiritual life, but life itself. The first two elements of Jesus' perfect storm are fairly uh, easy to understand and see, but the third is sort of less so, and we'll climb into that, to understand what the original meaning of that Palm Sunday was and the meaning that it brings to our own pilgrimage as we walk through this life in this day and age. The first element of that perfect storm then was this. It was the western winds of a cold-moving Roman Empire. The western winds of a cold-moving Roman Empire. A lot of times we don't think fully of what was taking place during that time. Rome had been steadily increasing its power and prominence over the previous centuries. You know, and I never realized it until I, I, I studied it this week. Do you realize that up until 30 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born, that Rome was actually still a republic? But that all changed with Julius Caesar. With Julius Caesar's rise and his ambition, and even more so than with his assassination. And what happened on the heels of that is it threw Rome into a long, bloody civil war. And on the other end of that war, the winner who came out was a man by the name of Octavius. He was Julius Caesar's adopted son. And Octavius took on the name of Augustus. And Augustus means majestic or worthy of honor. And he declared that his adopted father, Julius, Caesar, was divine after the fact. Which was interesting because then if he'd made that declaration, what happened? That meant that Augustus Octavian Caesar himself was now officially a son of God. A son of the divine Julius. The word went around. 
the world, the known world at that time. I mean, I mean, Rome was conquering places, man. They, they had the kind of, you know, the kings and the leaders and the, the warriors, and they were conquering the known world at that time. And so it began to go around the known world at that time is, you know, good news. We have an emperor. We have an emperor, and he is the son of God. A cold moving Roman Empire was part of the day. After Augustus' death, he too was divinized, and his successor was Tiberius. Tiberius took on the same titles. And you can find these coins that have Tiberius' image on them. On the front, around Tiberius' portrait, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back, Tiberius uh, was portrayed, and it said, it described him as the chief priest. You remember the story of Jesus being asked, well, should we pay our taxes, our tribute to Caesar? And Jesus said what? Show me a coin. And he looked at the coin and he said what? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God's what is God's. He was in the middle of a Roman Empire world that was declaring allegiance to a son of God, a high priest, I find it interesting. The first gospel that was written, the gospel of Mark. Do you know how it starts out? Mark 1.1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, Son of God. Oh. And you think it was calm and gentle back in those Bible story days? Not at all. Why was Rome interested in the Middle East? Well, it's sort of interesting. You you study it. They were interested in the Middle East for the same reason that we're interested in the Middle East today. Raw materials. Today, it's oil. Back then, it was grain. Rome was largely overpopulated. And so they needed to make sure that the trade routes from Egypt were kept clear and free so that they would be able to have the grain that was needed to be able to feed the people. The job of the Roman governor in that day was to administer justice, collect the taxes, and keep the peace, and in particular, to suppress any of the unrest. So that was the gale that was blowing, the first winds from the west. The Roman Empire spreading, demanding allegiance to the Son of God. And Jesus rode that donkey right into the middle and the heart of Jerusalem with all the Roman leadership. What was the second element of that perfect storm? It was the overheated high-pressure system of Jewish nationalism. The second great element... In this storm, it's, it's hard to really fully describe because we don't necessarily live in that kind of culture today. But it was interesting because as I was thinking through it this week, and I, 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 I always promise not to tread into politics too much. I get myself in trouble. But when you see some of the stirrings and the rumblings, even in our own country, and decisions trying to be made about presidential candidates and what the future might hold, There's a sense of rightful pride that we try to take 
in our own country. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself because we sing God bless America, right? And we talk about our Judeo-Christian roots. But phrases like to make America great again, you can see that for its value and its worth to make sure that we are a great nation under God and that we are providing opportunity for people and that we are rightfully dispensing justice and opportunity. There's nothing wrong with that. But something begins to get twisted in our culture, in our day, when that starts to rise up within us as a sense of nationalism of we're better than other people as a country. Well, see, the Jews had this problem a little bit. Just just a little bit. <laughs> because they had this long history. They had this history of, uh, of God being on their side. They had stories that would go way back, and the stories that went way back, the stories about them as a Jewish people and them as a nation is that God had picked them and that they were going somewhere. And that God was going to get them to that goal of where he wanted them to be as a people. The stories they told were not simply stories of small beginnings, sad times at present, or glorious days to come. They were specific, they were more complex, they were dense with detail, and they were heavy with hope. Their theme came to a full flower in the story of the Exodus. When Moses led his, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, through the desert, and into the promised land. Much detail on that story. In fact, you know, when they gather around, being able to remember that story, they would have different parts of the meal that would reflect on different parts of that whole detailed story. The Jews lived in hope that God would do it again, just like he had done In the Exodus story, the tyrants would do their worst, but God would deliver them. Now, if you understand the story of the Exodus, then you really understand in large the story of Judaism, and you can understand the story of Jesus. Jesus, he picked Passover week, the meal that symbolized all of the Exodus. He picked that week to ride in on a donkey. And he picked that week to draw attention not only to Israel's history and their past and the promises that were made to them as a people, but he chose it to draw attention to himself, connecting himself to that story and to the fulfillment of that story. The long story of Israel, he decided, must finally confront the story of Rome, the story of a progressive pagan culture. This is no time to be out in the open sea in an open boat and it's no time to be riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was supposed to be a direct on hard confrontation because the people, their dream was what? Their dream was that the Romans would be overthrown and that the Jews themselves would be able to rightfully establish their golden era reign. They depicted a lot with King David. And so they're thinking, we need a king. And here's the king, except the king is riding on a donkey and he's weeping. 
Because the dream he knew had to die, which was causing him to weep, was that that was not the kind of king that Israel needed. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, you will find passages that predict all that happens in Passion Week. But in particular, you have to begin with Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, verses 9, and Jesus would have known this story well, as well as those who were gathered around declaring Hosannas that day. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. And it goes on. Now, from that passage, if you had grown up with that passage, you're thinking, yeah, that's what our king's going to do. He's going to destroy all the weapons, these kinds of things. But yet the front part of the passage says what? He's walking in on a donkey. What's going on? So then you go to Luke 19. Palm Sunday is described in all the Gospels. All four of them, it's described this way in Luke 19. He says this, After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples as he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives was across the way from Jerusalem, and then you would go down into this valley. There was a whole path that he had taken coming in. He sent two disciples ahead, go into the village over there, he told them, and as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Verse 35 then. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down to the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and to sing as they were walking along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Jesus. We're confused. But Jesus was rightfully riding in on the donkey, recapturing the Old Testament scripture that he was the coming promised Messiah, that he would be king. But yet he was coming in a manner that they had not necessarily predicted. But they're excited. They're shouting. They're declaring. They're worshiping as we worship this morning. And they're shouting. It's not described here, but in other places, they're shouting the word what? We sang it. Hosanna. 
And Hosanna just isn't some general praise term like hallelujah, though we only sort of think of it that way. Hosanna was a declaration of God saves or he's our savior and Messiah. And they were really not just acknowledging it. They were pleading for it because Hosanna is save us, save us. And so the streets and all the environment and and the people shouting. And can you imagine Jesus riding in on the donkey and looking into the eyes? He was looking into the eyes of people that he knew. Imagine him looking into the eyes of, of Peter and looking into the eyes of John, looking into the eyes of some of the people that he'd healed, looking into the eyes of Judas. The people were clamoring. Their dreams, the moment they had waited on, was finally coming to culmination, but they couldn't quite understand it. You see, they had this sense of pride about themselves as a nation and as a people that they were more prominent and important than the others. But God, He created everybody in the whole world. And God's desire was not a Savior who would come for a particular group of people, but a Savior who would come to save the world. And Israel got confused along the way. The reason God blessed Israel was what? So that they could be a blessing to other people. You and I get that turned around sometimes. We think we're blessed just because we're blessed. No, maybe we're blessed to be a blessing. That was definitely true of the nation of Israel, but they didn't dial into that part of the story. The western wind met the high-pressure system of nationalism and expectations of the people. But what about the hurricane? What about the hurricane? Well, the third element is the unpredictable hurricane of God Almighty himself. The Jewish stories always contained an element of the unpredictable nature of God. Why? Because God remains free and sovereign. In other words, God will do what God wants to do. Does that rub you the wrong way? Sometimes it does for me. But God is free and God is sovereign. And he steps into this story. Again and again in the past, Israel held to its own story. But it was different than the story that God so many times would end up planning out ahead of them. And Jesus believed this was happening again now. God had promised to come back to return to his people in power and glory and to establish a kingdom on earth as in heaven. In fact, that's how he taught his disciples to pray, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Jewish people always hoped that this would be simply uh, an underwriting of their national aspirations. And they would be set up to be able to be seen by others as the it kind of country, the it kind of people, the it people who were blessed by an almighty God. But God coming in power and person would be entirely on his own terms and with his own purpose. And that his own people would be as much under the judgment of their aspirations as any other nation was. There would be no difference. Jesus believed that he came to Jerusalem, embodying, incarnating the return of Israel's God to his people in power and glory. But it was a different kind of power, a different kind of glory. 
And you will never understand Palm Sunday until you understand this unpredictable hurricane of what God did in that moment to rewire and refocus what greatness is all about. He goes on in the Luke passage to share this. This is the weeping part. This is the part that maybe some of those followers on that day were a little embarrassed by. Oh, suck it up, dry the tears. I mean, come on. Raise up your arms. Do something. Shout some declaration. Hold a news press conference or something. Don't just cry. But as he came closer to Jerusalem, it says in Luke 19:41, and saw the city ahead of him, he began to weep. How I wish today, he said, that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and the peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and enclose you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it. When God visited you. I've had the opportunity to be at a place called Masada, which is outside Jerusalem. It was a stronghold, the last stronghold for the Jewish people in the year 70 AD or something. And when I see these words, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. It wasn't just Jerusalem. What actually happened was... They fled to the top of Masada by the Dead Sea. High. You couldn't scale up these cliffs. But how they ultimately ended up defeating them was building up a ramp with dirt and some other kind of machinery, and they stormed into Masada. Here's Jesus, the prophet, predicting what was going to happen to the Israelites. And he was spot on. But he was weeping. Why? Because they had misread what the promise was all about. And they were focused on ulterior motives that were unclean and unholy in the great kingdom picture of God. They did not recognize it was God who visited them. Some of you might recall Jesus Christ Superstar musical drama that was out. And... um, Yeah, questionable in some ways, I guess, for some people. But when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and Simon the Zealot urges him to mount a proper revolution uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar, he says, you'll get the power and the glory, he says, forever and ever and ever. And then Jesus turns and sings some haunting lines. Neither you, Simon, nor the 50,000, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Judas, nor the 12, nor the priests, nor the scribes, nor doomed Jerusalem itself understand what power is, understand what glory is, understand at all. And then he continues with a warning that we just heard from this passage of Scripture. A warning of what was going to happen to Jerusalem when he says, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation by God when God visited you. Your dreams of national liberation leading you into a head-on confrontation with Rome. 
that was not God's dream. Not God's dream at all. God had called Israel so that through Israel he might redeem the world and bless the world. But they weren't dialed in to that. What are you riding on a donkey for? A donkey represents humility. A donkey represents, his reference in worship, peace. They were not in that mindset. And this perfect storm gathered at the beginning of Passion Week and it culminated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of which we will reflect on this Friday. The Jewish people said what? Enough of this. Now what about those people from Palm Sunday? Did they turn against Him? We don't know. Maybe some did, some didn't. Maybe, maybe it's just they didn't understand and they said, well, forget Him then. He's not the king we didn't imagine or the warrior that we didn't imagine. And so they turn. And the Romans, the governor, Pontius Pilate, couldn't put up with any of this type of ruckus. And so, though he didn't want to do it, he washed his hands and he said, all right, crucify him. Jesus was heading into the middle of a perfect storm. But then what do we do as we reflect on these elements related to our own day and our own personal life. Again, I don't want to step too much into it. But can you see that today there could easily be the same type of perfect storm brewing? The conflict in the Middle East. Western culture, maybe you don't define it just as that, but just... Secularism itself, pounding at the door. The plans of God, we know not when. Could it be that in our contemporary day and age, we're close to a Palm Sunday, and we don't even know it? There's great expectation for 2,000 years that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our grave, for our sins, and was raised from the grave on Easter Sunday that we'll be celebrating big time here next week. That that was all for the purpose of being able to prepare people's inner heart, their volitional choice to be a Christ follower in a quiet, not necessarily secretive way, but in a personal way first. But the accolades are spoken throughout that Jesus Christ is coming back again. And when he comes back again, isn't it incredible that it's described that he's riding not on a donkey out of the heavens. He's riding on what? A white horse. Stallion. He will establish his visible public reign in all the world. And all the turmoil and the conflict that we hear in the news and that we see people sacrifice their lives for, that will be gone. God will bring his peace when Jesus Christ returns. But it says we know not when. And as a young young boy, I tell you one of the things that captured my heart to be a Christ follower was studying about the end times. Because I'm a big picture person and I wanted to know what was going on. And I want you to know that that story that's a part of Palm Sunday that we celebrate this week and we look back and reflect on is still an ongoing story. It's happening and you are a part of it. You are in it. But where are you in it? 
It could happen. Wouldn't that be ironic of God? On Passion Week. That he would come a second time in all of his glory. So we long and we pray for that day. But we live in this day. And how does this call us to reflect in our own personal storms in life? Because there are perfect storms that are going on in this very room. And I tell you what, the battle comes up against some of the same kind of aspects and the elements of what was envisioned during that day. I want to go back and look at the three parts. Do you have that? The western winds. Maybe not of a cold moving Roman Empire, but the winds of our culture are pressing in on your life. Expectations and responsibilities. I had somebody come to me this week and said, I can't continue to do my job because it's not right what they're doing in the workplace. And the person quit their job. That is a bold move. We live in a culture of paganism. And a culture that presses in and it might cause us to compromise our integrity, might cause us to compromise other aspects of our life, but the winds of modernity blow and force their pressure upon us. At the same time, from within, there's this overriding high-pressure system, not of a Jewish nationalism, but maybe of a personal nationalism, selfishness. And there's nothing wrong with having dreams, I want, a, I want a great education. I want a job. I want to be able to make certain kinds of money. I want to be able to get married. I want to be able to live in this kind of place. I understand those kinds of things that come up. But are you building your own little kingdom and saying, look at me. Look at how God has, has maybe blessed me. And you're not dialed into the bigger picture of all that's going on. You see the high pressure system and our culture reinforces it that we need to be on this pathway of personal success and accomplishment well could it be that god's not calling you or i to personal success in the eyes of other people but calling you to a humble broken road to walk in a way that ministers to people people that god wants to touch that you will never get any acclaim for until maybe the final day on the other side It's pushed to us all the time. Winners, you're winners. Everybody gets a trophy now. Everybody be happy. We're all okay. It's the storm. It's the storm. And and you're being sucked into it. And sometimes you get sucked into it and you feel like you're 500 feet from the shore and you're going down in this valley and you're looking up at a 60, 100 foot wave and it's going to take you out. Then there's the hurricane of God. There's Jesus coming, rides on a donkey. And he says, I come that you may have life and have it to the full. The scriptures say that whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my sake will find it. Jesus gave up his life. And when he gave up his life, he was pointing us to follow that same road. And that same road is like, this doesn't, this is not how the dream comes about, that I would give up this and I go that way or this would happen to my life. What's going on, God? You just stay the course. And you stay yielded to the one who is your Savior, the one who can save now. You're Hosanna. And he will deliver. Oh, maybe not in the way that you might think. But God never disappoints. 
And out of the ashes and the brokenness of lives, he raises up beauty. The hurricane of God Almighty himself comes and realigns our life in unpredictable kind of ways. Some of you are living in the perfect storm today. And I want you to know that you have a Savior. And he knows all about your storm. And he wants to minister his grace and his power and his love in the midst of your life. Will you receive him? Or you will be caught up in the antics of the world. Self-centeredness, nationalism, you name it. We can go by the way of all other kinds of beliefs. But we have to go by the way of the cross. Passion week. The week that changed the world. The week that can change your life. If you will but surrender to the one who is the true not just king of the Jews, but king of the whole world. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that in moments such as this, your spirit ministers the words that are needed. I know not the storms that are represented in this room or the storms that people in this room are trying to minister to that are a part of someone else's life. But, Lord, I know you. I may not know the future, but I know the one who holds the future. And as we celebrate here on this Palm Sunday, we know that you are a God who can bring rescue. And so I pray for those who are in the midst of a storm that you would be the Hosanna, the God who saves now, and that they in their quiet way would yield their life to you. If they've never done that before, Jesus, just in the quietness of their heart as we close with this song, I pray that they would just surrender their life to you and say, Jesus, I repent. Come into my life from this day forward. I want to follow you. I may not understand you fully, but I understand enough to know that you created me, you came, you died for me, you rose from the grave, and that I can be called your child. I want that. And Lord, for those in this room who have been Christ followers, and yet they've been sort of sucked in by the storms of the world, whether it's the culture around us pressing us into its mold, or whether it's, it's just that self-centered me, me, me kind of thing that has these aspirations, and, and aspirations are good when they're divinely submitted to you, but Lord, so many times our aspirations take on an ugly bent. And we just pray, Jesus, for those who are here today, that you administer your power and your grace if they have been caught up in the storm and life's out of control. May they not perish, but may they be found in your grasp. Lord, we love you. We do pray one for another. Lord, may this be a special week as we walk through it, not only here in the services that we gather, but in the moments of solitude and worship, scripture reading that we have ourselves this week. May it be filled with you and not filled with all the busyness and the responsibilities only of this world. In your name we pray. Amen.